It was a cold, cold, cold day. The leaves were frozen stiff. Branches were covered in ice. The temperature outside must have been in the minus 10s and the minus 15s. The wind was howling. And I learnt one of the toughest lessons of my entire life that day. Good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are. Today, I would love to share a story about anger. So, I had the heaviest backpack a human being has seen in the Himalayas of Nepal. I intended to sleep out under the stars in my own tent and carried it. I intended to cook often as I could, so I put the food in my backpack. I intended to change my clothes frequently, so I had spare clothes in my backpack. And I intended to stay warm, so I had the biggest sleeping bag humanity's ever seen in my backpack. If I had been on the top of Mount Everest, I would have been well equipped, let alone trekking in the lowlands in the hardest part of the Himalayan walk where you climb and descend quite often 3,000 metres a day with this chronically overpacked, overweighted and overindulged backpack. But it was my second trip. I uh, still didn't have familiarity with the concept of hiring a porter for $2 a day, although the stuff in my backpack itself, including the heaviest Nikon camera you've ever seen in your life with associated lenses, was even just uh, having a cleaning brush on the lens of the camera was worth more than the cost of hiring a porter for two weeks. But I was just insecure about broaching that topic in jury. So let me go back to the beginning of this journey. And it began in Kathmandu after a failed attempt to do an exploratory trip across the Himalayas for 30 days. That's another story. But this time I had returned to Kathmandu with a backpack full of stuff and I wanted to use it. So I jumped on the Jiri bus. J-I-R-I, Jiri bus. The Jiri bus is a 14-hour bus ride from Kathmandu to the foothills of the Himalaya. It, um, the bus is full of local people. The cost of the trip is about $1.50. And so you can imagine that for a bus to be commercially viable for $1.50 a trip, it needed to have around about, I calculated, 200 people on the bus with a sign on the back saying, designed to carry 30. I ended up on the roof and I wasn't alone and my backpack was wrapped in um, a chicken wire with a padlock to stop people cutting it open with a knife, which was the practice back then. They cut your bag open with a knife, throw things off the top at particular way stations to people who would collect it, go back to Kathmandu and sell it to the trekking hiring companies. As we left Kathmandu, it was so hot, so scorching hot, I wore a t-shirt. Oh, scorching hot. 
and we start to ride along the highway, dust and smoke and fumes and everything going everywhere, and we're lying on the top of the bus, me and about 25 other people, amongst all the luggage on the top of the bus and chicken wire wrapped backpacks. There were a few other tourists on board <coughs> until we start to climb <laughs> up into the foothills of the Himalaya towards Jiri, which is at about 2,300 metres above sea level, at which the temperature plummets from the 40-something degrees centigrade of Kathmandu to about 5 degrees C. And with the wind chill factor on the top of the bus, I was shivering and my bag was covered in chicken mesh, which I needed to have a knife to cut open. The knife was in the bag and I just shivered to death on the roof of the bus. And I finally get to Jiri, all cold and shivery, got my bag and headed off to find from the um, uh, instruction book where to sleep for the night. My trek began there. And it was relatively harmless for the rest of the 10 days to lead to the day that we're talking about here, my night, my night, my night in the freezing Himalaya. I arrived at um, Tengboshe. Tengboshe. It's um, a beautiful, beautiful monastery, 4,000 metres above sea level, it took me 10 days to get from two and a half to 4,000. That's another story, up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down, finally get to Tengbushe. And the only accommodation in Tengbushe was a long hut. And in that hut slept the monks, and they slept on one long trestle so that we didn't have individual beds. We had just one long trestle table to keep us off the floor, on one side of the room and on the other side of the room. And so I snuggled in between monks who were wrapped in cheap uh, orange blankets as I donned my, donned my gorgeous 200 degree C minus quality sleeping bag and settled down to fart the night away like everybody else does in the Himalaya because of the lentils that you eat along the path. And so the night began. <coughs> 40 people, all male, in a room with an open fire down one end with no chimney. Um, and the open fire down one end with no chimney was let to sort of smolder and smoke. So we had 4,000 metres of altitude, which is about half the oxygen you would have at zero metres. Uh, we had farting people. With, it was like, a, a seriously, it was like ca uh, donkeys on cabbage. We had um, wind howling, freezing cold, everybody restless coughing and coughing because nobody's healthy in this environment. And anyway, the morning came. We all wrestled our way out of bed. Some stayed down, some got up. I, because I was going the next day to the next village, Dingboshe, if I remember rightly, I got up and started preparing my bag. I stuffed my sleeping bag into its 
protective folder and squeezed it tight and shoved and pushed and I got my backpack packed and I uh, drank the necessary uh, uh, chai tea and uh, paid a few dollars into the collection box and started towards the door. When one monk in stuttering English, most of them couldn't speak it, said the boss, the head monk, Ringpreche, has a letter. He wants you to deliver it to Dingpreche. And I'm so important. Well, self-importance is a funny thing. I've had a struggle with this topic in my life because in the early years of my life, I was told through a, a sequence of continual thrashings and humiliations in public that I wasn't important. And so I had worked really hard to become important and, and in my own mind. And, and this was another opportunity to put another peg in the wall of my own self-importance to deliver a letter from Ring Pache to the next village. And so I nodded with glee, only to watch the Ring Pache take a sheet of paper uh, from out of a precious um, uh, file, uh, a folder, and then take a dip pen. I don't know if any of you listening to this have even seen one, but it's similar to an old uh, feather quill that was usually a bird feather that they sharpened and dipped in the ink. And with this feather quill, the head monk proceeded to write in Tibetan a letter. It took one and a half hours. One and a half hours. I'm dressed, I'm standing up, I need a pee, I'm ready to go, backpack's ready, I can't go outside because it's minus a million. So I'm stuck in the smoky farty tent uh, uh, lodge with all the monks. Uh, no, no way to communicate, no food. Waiting for this freaking letter. And I got ahead of steam. I got to tell you, I was chewing my way through my, my uh, hat rack, hat uh, cord. I was chewing away, chewing away. And I couldn't eat any of the bars in my backpack because if I bought one out, I'd have to give everybody a bar. So selfishly, I starved myself for an hour and a half waiting for this letter. And finally, the letter was given to me. I shoved it in my bag in a, in a waterproof plastic, which I had plenty of because I had everything in there for the, except for the kitchen sink. And off I stomped. Now, if I had left the lodgings, an hour and a half earlier, I would now be dead. So let me just tell you the ongoing part of this story. I stormed out and in the meantime, porters and uh, yaks and all manner of things had walked past the front of this lodging and in doing so had created a pathway in the icy snow. This, unbeknownst to me, was very important to me because Along the way, where there is shade, where the sun doesn't get to melt a little bit of the ice and make it softer to walk on, the ice is basically a skating ring. And off I tromp, down the hill, slipping and sliding in the slosh and the mud and the broth and the beer, all the way 
toward Dingbashay. And as I got down into the valley, of course, the shadows started to appear on the trail and I'm stomping along and next thing you know, whoopie doo, walkers on his ass, sliding down an embankment in toward a river. Uh, the embankment was what I would call now vertical, but it wasn't, of course, because otherwise I f would have fallen vertical down. So it must have been a sloped embankment. I slid down the embankment, snapped or tore all the threads of my ankle into a thousand pieces and came to rest against a tree upside down. Through uh, persistence and fear of death, I got back up to the trail with this backpack. Um, people were walking past me smiling. Nobody stopped, none of their business. I managed to strap my ankle with bandages that I had in my well-stocked first aid kit in the back that I'd never used before and uh, proceeded to try and squeeze a frozen foot with ankle bandages in back into the shoe that wouldn't fit it and uh, had to cut all sorts of things in the shoe to get my foot back in and started to hobble down the trail uh, with a trekking pole as my only crutch. All day I walked, I consumed copious amounts of the medicines that I'd bought for pain relief in the backpack and arrived in Dingbashe with a foot the size of an elephant's trunk. It was seriously swollen up. I stayed the night in Dingbashe. The foot got worse. I got more angry. I got determined. And it's just going to stop there, this story. Anger distracts you and puts you so far up in your head that you don't see reality. If I weren't angry at the, at the hut with the monks, I would have thanked them for saving my life because that extra hour and a half allowed, it, allowed the trail to be softened and to be crunched and, um, and made safe. But no, not Chris. I was ticked and I came down that way and I'm going, and you think about it, what was the hurry? So I had it in my head. I wanted to get this done by this time, that place by that time. I knew it was a three-hour walk from uh, Tengbashe to Dingbashe or whatever it was, maybe four. I knew all that. So I really didn't have a hurry, did I? I didn't. I had all day. But no, I had it on my schedule. You know, I learned so much that day that the ankle pain that I suffered for the next two weeks from and the, and the eventual knee damage I did to the opposite knee because when you, it, when you walk in the mountains and you shy away from putting weight on your left foot, you put weight on your right knee. So I ended up at the end of that trek with a buggered up right knee and a healed up left foot. But the long and the short of this story is we must all be very, very careful when anger comes, when you feel a little bit of tension in the jaw, when your breathing isn't right, when you feel a bit hunched over into the front, when you feel yourself crouching forward, when you feel yourself hungry for more sugar, or when you feel yourself reaching for that wine bottle at four o'clock or five o'clock or six o'clock in the afternoon to validate yourself, know that you're angry. When somebody doesn't do what you want at work, try to find another way to see it. Try to find another way to look at it that dispels the anger because anger is going to be your own punishment because you are going to slip.
Anger makes people messed up. It drives them down into primal thinking. It drives them down into fight flight. It drives them down into primitive decisions. It drives them down into relationships which are based on lust and don't last. Based on lust and don't last. That was good. Oh, I like that. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this story today. Beware of anger. It really, 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 really doesn't help. Have a great day.